The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Tuesday, November 17th, 2020. I'm Jackson Bird. A look at trans figures in history in honor of Transgender Awareness Week. New stretchable sensor gloves that could change the game for robots, physical therapy, and virtual reality. Liquid Death, the over-the-top canned water company, has released their second album of the year. Plus a new release from Waffle House and a quick extra detail about the Moderna vaccine to add to my rundown from yesterday. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. This week is Trans Awareness Week. Technically, it started last Friday and it goes until Thursday, which seems like a weird way to organize a week, but that's because it was started as a week-long build-up to the Trans Day of Remembrance, which always falls on November 20th, as opposed to like the third Friday of the month or something. Anyways, Trans Day of Remembrance is a solemn day to honor the trans lives lost in acts of anti-trans violence. Around the world so far this year, 350 trans people have been murdered, and in the U.S. specifically, 34 trans people have been killed. Both of those figures are record highs, but they're also probably just skimming the surface, as it's a figure that is tough to quantify. They often go unreported or misreported. And it's also important to note here that the vast majority of those individuals were trans women of color, especially black women, who face violence and discrimination at disproportionately high rates compared to any other population. If you want to learn more about how to take part in virtual vigils on the Trans Day of Remembrance this Friday the 20th, or learn how to take action in the long term, I'll put some links in the show notes. But mostly I want to talk today about Trans Awareness Week, which, as I said, occurs each year for the seven days leading up to Trans Day of Remembrance, and it's a time to shed light on the experiences of trans people. The realities, the joys, the wins, but also, crucially, the challenges, the discrimination, and the work yet to be done. One of my personal favorite ways to spread trans visibility is by learning about trans people throughout history. Even though trans awareness has skyrocketed so intensely over the past five or so years that it can sometimes seem like trans people just sort of appeared amidst the culture wars of the 2010s, Trans and gender nonconforming people have existed throughout time and across cultures. From the Hijra in India and Pakistan, to the Mahu in indigenous Hawaiian cultures, to two-spirit individuals in some Native American tribal nations. Different words have been used for self-identification, and different cultures and institutions have encouraged or more often stamped out gender nonconformity, as it were in their specific culture, in different ways. But the people themselves have always been around. One complication is that while you can look back at people history has tried to erase and guess at how they may have identified, it's complicated for a number of reasons. First, 
we can't go back and ask them. And if there are any records of their own self-identification, which is rare, it's possible it was misreported by newspapers or expressed under certain types of duress or legal or social pressure and therefore maybe slightly inaccurate to their true feelings. And even then, at least in the case of much of the Western colonized world, the language has changed significantly. It wasn't until the early 20th century that medical interventions like hormones and affirming surgeries began to be available, and they weren't widely available for a number of decades. So prior to that time, the idea that you would completely and entirely live as a gender other than the one that you were assigned at birth was much less common, although a lot of people still did it. And further, words like transsexual and later transgender wouldn't become commonplace until the mid to late 20th century. So it's not like you can do a search for the word transgender on JSTOR and find primary sources going back centuries with examples of trans people. But also given those differences in phrasing and the reality of people's prospects, the way people conceptualized their gender would have necessarily been a bit different. Anyways, I bring all of that up to say that we can never really put 20th or 21st century labels on 19th, 18th, 17th, etc. century individuals. Some historians have developed litmus tests for guessing if a person could be identified retroactively as trans or if they were perhaps just transgressing gender norms for other reasons, you know, whether related to sexuality or social advancement or performance or any of the complicated and personal reasons one might do so. For example, there are tons of women throughout history who have dressed as men to serve in the military. Mulan, for example— although it's debated whether she was ever actually a real person who lived or just a figure in folklore. But she, like many other women throughout history who served as men in the military, went back to living as a woman after she served. One litmus test proposed by anthropologist James Cromwell is whether the individual continued living as a man after, in this case, returning to civilian life. And if they did everything they could to obscure their birth sex to the point of dying rather than seeking medical care, as many figures in history did. Historian Jenny Beeman continues this thread by saying, quote, If the individuals continued to cross-dress when it was publicly known that they cross-dressed, or if they cross-dressed consistently but only in private, in either case, the important factor is that the people who cross-dressed did not receive any advantage or benefit from doing so, other than their own comfort and satisfaction, end quote. Given that rubric, there are a number of people we can look back at throughout history and presume that they may have identified as trans or gender nonconforming in some way, as we would say it now. Like Chevalier Dion, a androgynous French spy and Freemason who fought in the Seven Years' War. And Wiwa, a Zuni Native American and cultural ambassador to the U.S., and Mrs. Nash, a beloved Mexican laundress and midwife in the Dakota Territory in the 1800s. There's also Albert Cashier, an Irish immigrant who served in the Union Army during the Civil War, and Colonel Emilio Robles Avila, who fought in the Mexican Revolution, and who, like Cashier, continued to live as a man after the war ended until his death at age 95. And one of my favorite figures from history, Deborah Sampson, who served in the Revolutionary War as a man, and while she did live out her life as her birth sex of female, there's evidence she at least attempted to continue living as a man before social and financial pressures became too much. 
What's interesting about Samson, however, is that there is a novel about her life called Revolutionary, which was written by one of her descendants, a trans guy named Alex Myers. And, of course, there are tons of figures from the 20th century, musicians like Billy Tipton and Wendy Carlos Williams, as well as folks that helped revolutionize medical treatment and social acceptance for trans individuals and who led the LGBT rights movement. Folks like Alan Hart, Roberta Cowell, Michael Dillon, Christine Jorgensen, Marsha P. Johnson, Sylvia Rivera, Stormy DeLarvery, Lou Sullivan, and so many others. If you are into history, I highly recommend checking some of them out to get a sense of some of the stories that have been largely erased from the narratives we've been told. I'll put a few links for further reading in the show notes, but in particular, I'll recommend a podcast called One from the Vaults, hosted by Morgan M. Page, which shares the stories of trans or gender nonconforming people from history, one per episode, and also the new Netflix documentary Disclosure, which looks particularly at how trans people have been represented on and off screen throughout the history of cinema. It's very well done and has been on a lot of the long lists for Oscar nods, so lots of reasons to check it out. In any case, I hope this deep dive made you a little more aware of a thing or two about trans people for this Trans Awareness Week. Cornell researchers have made a breakthrough that will make Ready Player One's haptic gloves seem quaint. They've created a glove with stretchable sensors that allow the wearer, whether human or robot, to feel pressure, bending, and strain. Quoting Popular Mechanics, In coming up with the new material, the paper's co-lead author, Heaton Bai, drew inspiration from silica-based distributed fiber optic sensors, which detect minor wavelength shifts as a way to identify multiple properties, such as changes in humidity, temperature, and strain. However, silica fibers aren't compatible with soft and stretchable electronics, meaning Bai had to come up with a new solution. And Bai's solution was to make a stretchable light guide for multimodal sensing, or SLIMS. This entailed using a long tube that contains a pair of polyurethane elastomeric cores. One core is transparent, while the other is filled with absorbing dyes at multiple locations and connects to an LED. Each core is then coupled with a red-green-blue sensor chip to register geometric changes in the optical path of light. The dual-core design increases the number of outputs by which the sensor can detect a range of deformations, including pressure, bending, or elongation, by lighting up the dyes which act as spatial encoders. The technology was then paired with a custom mathematical model able to decouple the different deformations and pinpoint their exact location and magnitude. End quote. And these SLIMS sensors are cheaper and more easily integrated into small systems like gloves, which gives them a significant advantage over distributed fiber optic sensors. And where this technology really gets interesting is when the SLIMS sensors are incorporated into a glove, which the team did with one running along each finger. The glove was 3D printed, is powered by a lithium battery, and connects to custom software via Bluetooth. And while the team is mostly looking to patent it for use in sports medicine and physical therapy, they also have an eye on applications for VR and AR. Research lead Rob Shepard told the Cornell Chronicle, quote, VR and AR immersion is based on motion capture. Touch is barely there at all. Let's say you want to have an augmented reality simulation that teaches you how to fix your car or change a tire. 
If you had a glove or something that could measure pressure as well as motion, that augmented reality visualization could say, turn and then stop so you don't over-tighten your lug nuts. There's nothing out there that does that right now, but this is an avenue to do it. End quote. Do you know about Liquid Death? It's a brand of canned water sourced from the Alps that was founded by former Netflix creative director Mike Cesario and earned $1.6 million in seed funding. It's literally just mountain spring water, although they now also have a sparkling version, packaged in aluminum tall boys that are designed to look kind of like beer with big gothic fonts and melting skull designs, and a series of commercials that look straight out of an Adult Swim lineup, complete with a metal backing track and the tagline, Murder Your Thirst. I have had a love-hate relationship with this company since the day they launched, but the more they go on, I think I genuinely just appreciate their existence. I mean, they're in on the joke and kind of doing good in the world. Their website says, quote, Let's be clear. Liquid death is a completely unnecessary approach to bottled water. In fact, we strive to be unnecessary in everything we do. End quote. They state their mission as making people laugh and getting them to drink more water in part by marketing their water in the same, quote, unnecessarily entertaining ways that energy drinks, beer, and junk food do. They also point out that they sell their water in aluminum cans not just for the humorous effect of it looking like a can of beer, but also because, quoting again, the average aluminum can contains over 70% recycled material. The average plastic bottle contains only 3%. Aluminum is infinitely recyclable. Plastic is not. In fact, plastic is not even technically recyclable anymore because it is no longer profitable to recycle. So many recycling facilities simply send plastic to landfills because they would go out of business trying to recycle it. Environmental economists now say it's actually better for the planet to throw your plastic in the trash so that it requires less trucking to get it to the landfill. Of all the aluminum produced since 1888, over 75% of it is still in current use. End quote. Liquid Thirst also donates 10% of their profits to the Thirst Project and other nonprofits engaged in fighting the plastic problem and bringing clean drinking water to those in need. Which is all great, but why am I talking about Liquid Death today? Because they just dropped their second album of 2020. That's right, part of their marketing strategy includes full-length albums, available on Spotify and pressed vinyl, of course. The first album from earlier this year was all metal in matching with their commercials. This latest one is more punk, featuring collaborations with legends like Dan Andriano from Alkaline Trio, Tim McIlrath from Rise Against, Brendan Kelly from The Lawrence Arms, and Chris Barker from Anti-Flag. But both albums follow the same shtick. They're titled The Greatest Hates, Volumes 1 and 2, and the lyrics are made up entirely from actual hate comments that they've received online. And honestly, it's pretty great. I'm especially a fan of this second album musically, but even the track titles and lyrics are pretty great. Some highlights. Your product is dumb. Fire your marketing guy. Liquid lame-o. Reconsider your life choices. Think it's funny to joke about eternal damnation. And huge tools, parentheses, every single person involved. Again, you can listen to this latest album on Spotify or pre-order the colored vinyl on their website. 
And just one more quick weird drink thing while we're here. Waffle House has officially released their first beer called Bacon and Kegs. It's a bacon-infused red ale produced by Oconee Brewery in Georgia and apparently actually smells like bacon when you open the Waffle House-themed can. Unfortunately for me personally, it will only be available at Oconee Brewing in Georgia, so if you're in Georgia, please go have a pint in my honor so I can live vicariously through you. So one more quick thing, yesterday I shared a few details about the Moderna vaccine, but I failed to mention one very important detail. The research was funded in part by Dolly Parton. Yes, that's Dolly Parton. She donated a million dollars to Vanderbilt University Medical Center as the Dolly Parton COVID-19 Research Fund, and that money has been going to an antibody plasma study, the Moderna vaccine study, and several other papers related to the virus. You can fact check this in Moderna's preliminary report in the New England Journal of Medicine, which is kind of cool to see. As people on the internet are jokingly saying, Dolly Parton cured COVID-19. Which, of course, is not strictly true at all, but, you know, really, what more could you want? Oh, what's that? You would really wish she would put out another Christmas album? Well, lucky for you, she did that as well. A Holly Dolly Christmas dropped last month, just in time for your festive enjoyment. But that is all the Dolly news for today. I am now gonna go chug some liquid death. I hope you have a great rest of your day, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow.